Hi, I'm Ruthie Siders. I'm the pastor of Central and Next Gen Ministries. I've been working with kids and students since I was a college student. And I'm coming to you today from our student ministry spaces where usually students are roaming all over the place and playing games. And in the summer, our children come through on their various stations as they rotate through for Kids Week. This year, we held our first ever virtual at-home edition of Kids Week. Over the last two weeks, 260 families and 500 children participated in what we affectionately call the best week of the summer. We customized the video lessons with our own hosts, Freddie Focus and Miss Kenzie Better. That's our new Lexington Children's Ministry Elementary Director, Dom Bronico, and a longtime volunteer, Simone Arkenstall. They introduced us each day to the theme of focus. We assembled kits of supplies for each of the days for every family, and then we welcomed the families to come to a drive-through so they could pick up their kits over a two-day period. We also mailed over 30 kits beyond the greater Boston area, and I'm not just saying to the Cape or to New Hampshire, but Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, even Oregon, and California. And then everything went live the week of July 27th. We spent our time watching the lessons and making simple crafts and doing some fun activities that centered around our theme of focus. Everything we did was to illustrate the call that we have to focus our eyes on Jesus. And that's found in our guiding scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, to fully understand the meaning of Hebrews chapter 12, we need to look back at Hebrews chapter 11. It opens with this ancient and articulate definition of faith, that faith is the confidence of things hoped for and the assurance of what we do not see. What follows is what we call the Hall of Saints. The author of Hebrews lists name after name of the faithful followers of God we find in the Old Testament who were rewarded for their faith without ever seeing the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They held on to the assurance of the things that they hoped for, yet not yet visible reality of the Messiah who was to come. It's a list that includes some really unlikely people. Listen to these descriptions and see if you can identify who I'm talking about. A humble man of God raises his three sons with his wife in a cultural climate that's increasingly decadent and destructive. He takes up a new trade, much to the ridicule of his neighbors. This shipbuilder then surprises everyone when he begins gathering supplies for a sea voyage in the middle of a desert. Animals arrive two by two and join this man and his family as God promises to preserve them through an impending rainstorm. Noah. Here's the second one. A wealthy man leaves a prosperous city for a land that he has never visited. Once there, his wealth multiplies beyond all expectation, and his nephew and he negotiate a major subdivision of the real estate. God gives him a new name. It's Abraham. Here's a third one. Trying to make ends meet in a large Middle Eastern city, this woman engaged in a form of entertainment which came in handy when she had the occasion to hide two young men who came to her door. 
Sensing there was something different about these men, she chose to put her faith in their god, who seemed much more personal and powerful than any of the false gods of her people. She was rewarded for her faith by being spared when her city was invaded, and she became the great-great-grandmother of King David. That's Rahab. And the last one. If you've been joining us over the last few weeks, I'm hoping this one will sound familiar. Raised in the family herding business, this man had jealous brothers who sell him to foreign slave traders. Eventually, he winds up as a top-level manager only to be imprisoned on fake charges of harassment. But a fortunate opportunity distinguishes him before the king, and he ends up in a highly responsible position from which he manages large-scale grain storage and distribution. And that's Joseph. God chose unlikely men and women to be witnesses of the kingdom of God. And this list closes as chapter 12 begins. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses is made up of all those who have gone before us, people who responded to the call of God in their lives. For the readers of this letter, believers who were Jewish followers of Jesus, their witnesses were these historical people, heroes of their faith, who they had long revered. When we look at this list, we can see where they yielded their lives to God, where they gave up their rights, they submitted themselves to the will of the Father. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. And they all did so without the benefit of knowing Jesus Christ without the personal indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I, we live on this side of the manger and the cross and the empty tomb and Pentecost. We have the benefit of seeing the promise fulfilled that these witnesses could only hope for. But the writer tells us to look to them. The image that's painted is that of a great athletic arena where a crowd towers above the competition field. And the crowd is not there merely to be spectators, but models and examples for us to look at. We look at them and draw strength from them as we run our race. Now, in 1984, my family was really excited to watch the first ever women's marathon in the Olympics because a daughter of Portland, Maine, and a cousin of my sister's best friend, Joni Benoit, was running. Joni won the race easily, setting records and bringing home the gold to our New England community. However, it was Gabriella Anderson Scheiss of Switzerland who may be remembered even more as she came into the stadium 20 minutes after Joni had finished the race to run that final lap clearly in pain. The muscles in her legs were cramping from dehydration. Everyone in the stadium was watching in awe as she staggered around the track and made her way to the finish line. Her left arm hung limp by her side. Sweat was dripping from her face, but she kept her eyes on the goal that was ahead of her. Medical personnel were running alongside the track, ready to catch her if she fell. And as soon as she crossed the line, the crowd went wild. They set up such a shout and the first aid team rushed to her side and carried her off to the medical tent. Now, both women crossed the finish line, 
Both women completed the race. Both women were focused and kept their eyes on the goal. And both were surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses to encourage them. As we run the race of life, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses from the list in Hebrews chapter 11, but also so many more who have since ascended to, into the presence of God, men and women who've gone before us to bear witness to the life of faith, people well-known like Augustine and St. Francis, Mother Teresa, even Martin Luther King Jr., as well as some of our first-hand witnesses who influenced our own faith. For me, I look to my mom and dad and my beloved aunties. Who is in your crowd? Who is someone who made a difference in your life, and perhaps led you to the cross or introduced you to Jesus? Picture that person sitting in the stands, watching you run the race. What encouragement, what examples do they demonstrate of faith, perseverance, humility, service, compassion, love, and joy did they model for you? Friends, focus on the one who loves you enough to surround you with such a cloud of witnesses. Since we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, those who bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we must throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. One scholar said this sin to which the author refers is pride. Pride can lead to any number of sins that can trip us up or cause us to stumble or lose our focus. Pride gets in the way of our being able to run the race. Now, many of us have been raised to be independent and self-sufficient, typical, hardy New Englanders. That the thought of surrendering our life choices, our decisions, and our priorities to God seems almost foolish or irresponsible. During the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, I volunteered as a camp counselor and worship leader at a Christian camp in Maine that I'd attended as a child and a youth. I went back to volunteer for the fun. But the Lord used it to reorient my priorities and my life direction. Now, the reason I was able to take the whole summer off and volunteer was because I was on a full scholarship with Air Force ROTC, little known fact, at the University of New Hampshire. That, along with my being a resident assistant in the dorm and my part-time job in the student union meant I really didn't have too many expenses coming up for the next school year. So I decided I'd go to camp and just help out for the summer before reporting to my two weeks of basic training, after which I'd be signing my commitment to the Air Force at the start of my junior year. What I did not expect was the impact of the community of believers that surrounded me that summer who would speak into my life and point out gifts for ministry and encourage me to consider what was God calling me to do with my life? Several even suggested he might be preparing me to be a pastor. And that was the furthest thing from my 20-year-old mind. Week after week, pastors and leaders who had actually watched me grow up at camp, even the one who had baptized me at camp when I was 14, they challenged me that while the Air Force was indeed a noble calling, 
had I prayed about it. To be honest, I hadn't prayed about it. I hadn't prayed about signing up for ROTC. And while I do respect, I have so much respect for those who choose to serve our country in this way, my father and my brother both did, I had joined because I knew that as a female and as a mathematics major, I'd get a scholarship. And that was something I wanted so I could stop feeling guilty that my folks were having to pay out-of-state tuition. I never felt called to a career in the military. So the week before I was scheduled to go to BASIC, I went home to discuss with my parents everything I'd been praying about and talking about over the summer. And I was afraid they'd be upset, that they would say I need to transfer to an in-state school. But instead, my folks, my folks were incredibly positive about this new path, and they covenanted to pray with me and support me in this change. So then I had to go to UNH and resign my scholarship. And to this day, I remember walking into the building and going into the office of the Commandant of Cadets. I don't remember his name, but I do remember he was a major. And I told him the purpose of my visit, and he asked me for my reasoning. And I said, well, sir, I never really prayed about this decision in the first place. And after a summer to reflect, to pray, to speak with people who know me well, I just don't believe this is what God's calling me to do. And I'll never forget his response. God? God? That's not much to depend on. With the Air Force, when you finish college, you'll be a commissioned officer and have a job the minute you graduate. Now that is something you can depend on. Took me back a little bit, but I responded. I said, respectfully, sir, if I can't depend on God, I'm not sure what I can depend on. I thank you very much for this opportunity, but I must surrender my scholarship. And I handed him my paperwork and politely requested to be dismissed. He thought I was foolish and irresponsible. He thought I was throwing away a secure future that I could see for something that was undefined and unseen. But the fact is, I had been trusting in my own plans. I was sitting on the throne of my own life instead of inviting Jesus to have that place. My own pride, my sense of self-sufficiency, my desire to be in complete control of the tra trajectory of my life, that had tripped me up. So focus on the one who loves you enough to shift your focus and clarify your call. The writer of Hebrews says that whatever our sin may be, it entangles us. And whenever I read this section, I have this image of the seaweed that washes up on the shore when you're trying to walk along the beach. It wraps around your ankles and your toes and you can't shake it off. And have you noticed that you start just getting fixated on that seaweed until you can shake it free? Friends, we can't focus on where we're going if our eyes are down at our feet. This sin is also likened to a heavy load that weighs us down like an oversized coat. It's a weight that slows our progress and begins to consume our attention. It's all we think about. We must cast off that weight, cast off that burden in order to be fit for the race. And then run. The text continues, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Run with perseverance. The Christian life, friends, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We are to run the race that's marked out for us. Someone has gone ahead of us to set the course. That's why Jesus is called the pioneer of our faith. He has marked the trail. Jesus has opened the way to God and enables us to follow in his footsteps. And he's not just the pioneer, he's also the perfecter. He has already completed the race and in him we're able to complete the race as well. We will see him at the finish line if we stay focused. So focus on the one who loves you enough to clear the path so you can run the race. Now the phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus, literally means to look away from one thing and to concentrate on another. If we fix our eyes on him, we're looking away from everything that easily distracts us, and instead we're focusing on Jesus. Jesus modeled that for us. He fixed his eyes on a prize that gave him the endurance to run the race that the Father had asked him to run. The text tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Some scholars explain the joy set before Jesus was his eventual reinstatement at the right hand of the Father. But others explain the joy set before Jesus were the children of God he was going to win back to the Father and rescue from the grip of sin and death. Jesus willingly left the glory of heaven and took on human likeness and the position and posture of a servant. He died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. The joy set before him was the vision the Apostle John recorded in Revelation when persons ransomed by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, young and old from every tribe and language and people and nation, would come a kingdom to serve our God. For that joy, he endured the cross. And the writer tells us then to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so you will not grow weary and lose heart. So consider what he endured. Jesus was the only one who could satisfy the justice of God. He endured the humiliating injustice of betrayal and false arrest, accusations, a trial, conviction, beatings, and death. And in his resurrection, he defeated the evil one who works to keep us entangled and weighed down. So don't lose heart. Stay focused. Focus on the one who loved you enough to go to the cross so you could experience grace and forgiveness and love and life and become part of the kingdom of God. And this is the good news that we want people of all ages and especially our children and our young people to understand. In our Kids Week lessons, a phrase we repeated every day was this. Faith means trusting in what you can't see because of what you can see. And then we unpacked that day with five what we call bottom lines or ways to focus on that truth. These are good reminders for all of us as we run our race, whether we are just beginning 
or enjoying the scenery along the flat stretches, or perhaps struggling up Heartbreak Hill, or picking up speed on that downward slope. Here are the five focus points for the week. Number one, focus on what you can see, the beauty and intricacies of God's creation. Romans 1.20 tells us, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. God has revealed Himself in His creation. You know, growing up in New England, I took for granted the beauty that is all around us. Now, after living in other parts of the country, all it takes is a, a glimpse of the ocean or the blue water of the reservoir as you go down 128, the canopy of the colored leaves on some of these back roads, or that blanket of freshly fallen snow to remind me of God's incredible creativity and his care for us to have beauty around us. So lift up your eyes, look around. What do you see that points out the truth of who God is? Focus point number two, you can hear from God. Reading scripture regularly, being in conversation with others who follow Jesus is how we can hear and understand what God wants to say to us. So when was the last time you just sat down to read the Bible for the sake of just reading the Bible, not because you were looking up an answer for something? Are you studying the word with others? And if not, we'd love for you to join a small group. Just send us an email and we'll get you hooked up to a group before the fall. Focus point number three. You can talk with others about what you believe. Jesus has called each of us to share with others what we believe and not keep it to ourselves. So who is the Lord placed in your life during this season of pandemic and unrest with whom you could share this good news and the love of Jesus? Focus point number four, you can pray anytime, anywhere, about anything. Nothing is too small or too big for us to bring to God. And students, don't be like me and plan out your whole life in a vacuum from the one who created you and gifted you. Pray about your coursework, your college choice, or your vocational calling. And don't forget, all of us, it brings God great joy when we take time out to just rest in his presence, to speak with him, and to sit quietly and listen for him to answer. And then focus point number five, you can live for God by loving others. Jesus said, love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So may we be known in each of our communities and throughout Metro Boston and as far away as New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or Oregon and California, as a community of brothers and sisters who are of different tribes and languages and people groups and nations who love each other, who truly love each other. But we can only do that if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, if we remain focused. So focus. Focus on Jesus.
Focus on the one who loves you enough to go before you to set the course, who surrounds you with those who encourage you by their example, who extends his grace and forgiveness to you through his work on the cross, and who waits for you at the finish line with living water to refresh your soul as you finish the race. Let's pray together. Our loving God, we thank you that you sent Jesus from the glory of heaven to become a humble servant who submitted to your will because he was the righteous one who could redeem and ransom those of us who are unrighteous. May we be people who fix our eyes on Jesus and follow his example. May we follow the example of those who have gone ahead of us. And may we be people who look for ways that we can see you at work all around us, who spend time in your word so we can hear you, who take time out to pray, who talk to others freely about our love for you and your love for us. And may we be known as people who love you because of the way we live, by loving one another. To you be the glory this day and every day we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Amen. <laughs>